Hi, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. In today's episode, we're focusing on stigma and harm reduction. I'm Kelly, and I've got Kim in the co-host seat today, and we're joined by our guests, Brandy, Janetta, and Jackie. Brandy, Janetta, and Jackie's bios are posted in the module for the podcast, but I'm hoping each of you can give us a little bit of an overview of your background and really your path to what brings you to us today in this conversation. Jackie, maybe we'll start with you. For sure. Thanks, Kelly. So my name is Jackie. I am a pharmacist and my full-time job is at the Infectious Diseases Clinic in Regina, Saskatchewan. And what I do here is help provide care to people living with HIV. And because in Saskatchewan, a lot of our HIV is driven through injection drug use, we also provide addictions uh, services here at the clinic as well. And so I'm heavily involved with that with very vulnerable populations. Um, my background, it's been diverse and changing. I've worked in community pharmacy. I've worked in long-term care as well in, as, um, in the hospital and internal medicine. I also did some work with opioid stewardship as well. And through that, journey, I kind of developed my passion for working with marginalized populations, which has led me to where I am today. Hi there. So I'm Janetta Salvalaggio. I'm a family physician and a professor at the University of Alberta. And we are in Amiskwachiwaskahikan, which is a Cree word that is the original word uh, for Edmonton, Alberta. And it's uh, actually uh, Beaver Hills House. So I just, I like to situate the work in that place because a lot of what we talk about today um, has a tremendous overlap with coloniality and multi-generational trauma. So I just put that out there first. And as far as uh, my own journey, so I um, am a family physician. Um, I'm also trained in public health from a graduate uh, studies perspective. So I've, I've journeyed around. I've done rural and very urban practice. I've done acute care and community-based care. But I think the real shaping influences on my career trajectory have been sitting and visiting and talking with people who use drugs, especially people who use drugs within um, spaces of particular structural vulnerability. And so I would say that I probably learned more on harm reduction van ride-alongs um, in central Edmonton um, and doing street based outreach than I ever did learn in medical school. That's me. And I, I come to this from a critical realist lens and an equity lens. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. Hi, everyone. I am a drug use expert and advocate. I uh, have a long history of drug use. I stopped drug use. I became an addictions counselor. I worked doing that for a number of years in a far northern community called Lawash, Saskatchewan. Really wonderful community, beautiful community, uh, very hard place to stay for a long, long time, just because of the level of dysfunction and cultural differences as well. After the school shootings in 2016 up there, I left for my own mental health and that of my son and um, been working since then, primarily doing work around advocacy and assisting with research and uh, knowledge translation and kind of keeping researchers uh, going in the right direction a lot of the time, working with them to fight stigma and uh, to keep things, I guess, patient-centered as much as possible from the lived experience perspective, as well as from the on-the-ground worker perspective. Uh, because, you know, those reports and government documents are great, but um, none of those are our projects, you know, become anything unless they have utility and applicability uh, to the reality in the ground, right? Yeah, I've been doing a lot of work around drug user advocacy, drug user rights. I'm a member of the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs, a member of the board of directors for that organization. In my case, I'm a person who used drugs, but because the human rights situation around the right of drug users to life and ordinary human rights and healthcare and every other just basic level of respect is still such a fight. I feel that that's one I can't leave. And also doing a lot of work around harm reduction and harm reduction education. I just did a, a play and uh presentation at Harm Reduction International. I was really happy with that. I got to be first author on that project. So that was wonderful. And uh, yeah, I guess that's all. Great. Thanks. 
And I'm already interested in hearing more about your experiences um, that you just mentioned. So I think maybe that's where we're going to start. And for this conversation, I actually went back to the equity, diversity, inclusion, and cultural safety module that our listeners for today have either already participated in and completed or in the process of completing. And I pulled kind of three little statements that I just wanted to set this conversation with first. Um, So the first was that stigma is negative attitudes and beliefs about a group of people due to their circumstances in life. So a bit of a definition there. Stigma matters because it can prevent people from getting help. Stigma creates barriers to accessing important health and social services. So maybe let's start, Janetta, with you. And if you could share some of your experiences and maybe your thoughts on how stigma has prevented people from getting the care that they need. I mean, I think what I, I think what we have to talk a little bit about who should be centered in any care. And I think that's the bottom line. I think the, the ultimate difference between true justice-oriented uh, health care and more stigmatized versions of health care is the the extent to which the whole conversation is led and centered around the person who is experiencing the care need. Uh, so I think that's very, very important. The minute we start othering people and determining that they are lesser than, uh, determine that they are not equally, if not more, uh, deserving of support and love by our community. That's when we end up coming into stigmatized space and health harm, real health harm from people who then uh, choose to mistrust the system and then not come back and, and talk with their pharmacist or talk with their family physician in my case. So this plays out in real life all the time for us. All it takes is one negative interaction with some care team member for people then to really, really mistrust uh, the system more broadly and be very worried about being open and authentic and upfront with us. And and why not? And so I, I don't see why anybody would would want to be open and honest with me if uh, their whole experience with any formal health systems has been burn after burn after burn. So I think that's really important for us to know that we're all practicing, even despite best intentions in the moment, we are personally going to mess up from time to time and need to own up to that. We are also working, functioning within a space, a system that has been essentially structurally violent. And in, in the case of uh, colonized people has been an instrument of colonialism. So just being aware of that space and knowing that that just basically perpetuates stigma and that we have to earn back trust and earn back allyship in every single interaction that we do and understand that that's going to have an impact on future interactions going forward for every one of our colleagues. To add to what was being said regarding stigma, I'm old enough to remember a time when I would go in as a patient to Saskatoon's Westside Community Clinic, where the majority of the population were people who were injection drug users. And they would line up for walk-ins in the morning. Everybody come in at about nine o'clock. As soon as they opened the doors, there'd be a crowd outside waiting, maybe 20, 30, 40 people, even when it was winter, cold. And they'd line up and they'd go to the front. Is Dr. Hellier working? Is Stephen here? Dr. Hellier, is he here? At that time, Dr. Hellier was the only doctor in Saskatchewan who worked from a harm reduction perspective and was very non-judgmental. And when people told him the truth about their lives, he didn't uh, reprimand them or scold them or tell them that they were bad or, you know, you need to stop, you need to change, you need to this, that, and the other thing. Because if it was easy enough that somebody could just stop what they're doing because a doctor told them to, then they probably would have stopped what they're doing when their kid told them to, when their mother told them to, when their husband and wife told them to. When the child protection services told them to, when their wife cried at them and like kneeled on the floor begging them to stop, you think that they would maybe stop then? If they didn't stop then, they're sure not going to stop because Dr. Nick so-and-so tells them, well, drugs are bad for your health and I just can't provide you with care if you continue this behavior. What would happen if Dr. Hellier was full or not working, every single person would say, thanks, When's he going to be back, turn around and walk out the door? 
because they would not see a service provider. They will not see a pharmacist. They will not see a nurse. They will not go to a hospital if they feel that people are looking at them like they are less than. And that goes for all groups who are stigmatized. If something happens to a high income Caucasian person of upper, you know, middle or upper middle income, they have a high level of social capital and a staff is having a bad day and they're short with them. Their reaction is that that staff member is, you know, rude and bad and you know they might make a complaint for a person who is in a position of being stigmatized whether that's because they are a drug user or a sex worker or because of their race their ethnic background maybe their poor english i know certainly for a lot of people in lawash they're very self-conscious if their english is not a hundred percent perfect if their first language is their own language, their Dene Suvine language, and maybe they use the wrong pronouns at times in English because their language structures are very different. They're very self-conscious. They worry that they look ignorant, that they look uneducated, that they look stupid, that they look like they're from the bush and they're not, you know, as, as somehow as good. I know that those are the worries people expressed to me. Those are the things people came to me, you know, crying about saying like, you know, nobody would listen to me. And, and that's what they thought of them, that people were thinking of them. It matters how people have experienced perception previously. And I like what was said about each interaction piles upon each other so that if people begin to have trusting interactions and those become more normal, then people will begin to have some trust in the system. But for most people who come from any kind of a place of being stigmatized, you really have to go out of your way to don't treat them like they're somebody who's done something wrong. Don't treat them like everybody else. Don't treat them like normal. Treat them like your boss. Treat them like your boss just came in and needs something from you. If you have to have a hard conversation with that person, most of us as professionals have had to like tell um, a supervisor or a boss somehow, no, I don't think that's going to work. No, you know what? I, I don't know if we can do that for you. Um, you know, I don't think that that really works within the, the scope of our program or some other difficult conversation where you've had to have with an employer. That's the tone you need to take with people. Give them respect. Give them admiration. Even the most like you know, people who are not appreciated by society, everybody has things that they know about, everybody has things that they're good at. If you have the opportunity to get to know clients over a period of time, as um, pharmacists often will, for example, if they're uh, providing, you know, uh, somebody's frequent methadone or opioid agonist therapies, you'll get to know that, that person's abilities and their Areas where they're strong and superior to the average. Providing people with that kind of assurance, you know, telling them that you respect or admire something about them. That can go such a long way to helping people to build healthy relationships with care providers and more equal relationships. Because no matter when people are coming in to see you, if you're a professional and they're your client, they're always socially in a position where you have power over them. And that power relationship is doubled, it's trebled, it's quadrupled for every intersectionality that that person experiences. You know, so if somebody is a racialized person and they're an IV drug user, then you know what, that power differential between you is probably four or five times what it would be between me and my pharmacist as a non-racialized person, as a Caucasian person who has some education and a middle-class background. You know what, for me, that power differential is maybe a bit reduced, but even for somebody who is just, uh, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Average coming in and they speak to their pharmacist or their physician, there is still a power difference there because you're in that position as a professional.
Randy, you've given us a lot to unpack, and I am so looking forward to this conversation and spending a little bit of time picking apart some of the things you brought up. And Jeanette, I appreciate, like, Randy, what you just said really brought some experience, some life to what Jeanetta said about keeping this person centered, centering people who, you know, in the center of their care. Um, I wanted to ask more about what othering people looks like, what treating people lesser than. Randy, I think you just gave us some amazing examples of that, right? Reprimanding, scolding. Even just like, you know, the sigh, the raised eyebrow, ah. the like pulling your head back, like, because you don't believe it, you know, it's just another one of this person's BS stories, another drug user. You know how you know a drug user is lying? Because their lips are moving. A lot of the time, we really need to learn how to measure and control and be very aware of our body language because people are very aware of body language. And I would say certainly people who are street involved are far, far more aware of that than the average person. It's not just what we say, it's how we say it. Absolutely. So that's why if I could give people any piece of advice, it would be to cultivate in yourself genuine feelings of respect and try to find genuine things to admire and to love about every single person that you deal with because if you don't feel it they will know it and you might not always love people's behavior and believe me speaking from the professional lens I know that sometimes people's behavior can be acutely frustrating even dangerous both to themselves and to you as a staff but you can still have that unconditional positive regard for the fact that they are a human who is struggling with things that you know nothing of. Okay, Jackie, Janetta, I need to come to you because is this empathy? Is this what empathy looks like? Can you speak a little bit more? Jackie, do you want to touch on this first? Sure, we can. I mean, yeah, Brandy just mentioned so many things that I think I just go through my day to day. And it's always while I've worked in this work for how many years now, it's a continual learning process. And we are all continually learning. And as Janetta mentioned, we will mess up from time to time, I, especially the body language. Some of the best compliments I've ever received is when a patient says to me, I can tell you're actually listening to me. You're not just sitting in the room across from a desk. And that can be many different things. That can be when you're in the hospital, getting down at the patient's level at the bedside instead of standing over and talking to them, removing the desk from in between you and your client, coming around outside your pharmacy counts counter and speaking to someone in a position that they're more comfortable in, all of those things that can remove this dynamic of power. In terms of empathy, I think we try, we mix up empathy and sympathy. We mix in feeling bad. And then sometimes we want to be superheroes and we think empathy is solving everybody's problems. And I'm not an expert in empathy, but empathy is really none of those things. Empathy is being there and sitting with someone in the space with what they are going through and just letting them know that you are there. And I struggle with this lots with I want to fix. There's a problem and I want to fix it. And as the pharmacist in a multidisciplinary clinic, nine times out of 10, the main issue is not something that I can fix. And nine times out of 10, the main issue is not something we can fix in our clinic. We can work on a piece of it. We can work on steps towards it. We can work on something completely different that may make it easier in the background. But to sit there and to be there and to be able to hear somebody and sit in that space with them and just go, that really sucks. That must be so hard for you. You shouldn't have been treated that way. I'm here for you to listen to that. You can't fix every bad thing that every uh, healthcare provider encounter that they may have had that day, but you can be a good encounter as Brandy mentioned, and those good encounters will also multiply and spread as well. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Janetta. I love it. I think that the idea of empathy is, is very much interlinked with concepts surrounding someone with a safe space and support in which to bear witness to their story and honor that story and honor that space. And I alluded to power and privilege of which I, I own it. I know I've got a lot of it, but it takes up a lot of space and takes away space in a room very, very easily. So knowing that 
at the outset and giving that back and honoring that space and honoring that person's dignity and that person's story and not making it about you. I have to agree with Brandy. Empathy is really hard to do if you're inauthentic. And if you are just showing up in name only and not really being present and owning who you are and what you bring to the table and your background and your story and recognizing how that means that you're going to react a certain way. Uh, We all bring experiences to the table. We talk a lot about patient-centered care, but it's person-centered care, but it's about relationship-centered care and recognizing that you bring a lot of stuff into that space and that as the healthcare provider in the room, you tend to be privileged in that space. So what do you bring? What does the other person bring? And how do you level the playing field a little bit so that both of you can create a safe space in which to create a shared uh, system of care, a shared treatment plan, a, you know, shared goals and values as far as what that person feels they need for their well-being. Your comment that my, you know, one of my responsibilities as a healthcare provider is to provide safe and supported space for people to bear witness to their story. That's pretty powerful. And also what I took from this is that there's a certain amount of work that I need to do as a healthcare provider to make sure I'm coming to my patients. To, to be prepared or, and positioned to support them well, right? I wanted to spend a little bit of time chatting about mistrust. And I think that as a healthcare professional, as a pharmacist and our audience of pharmacists, pharmacy professionals, recognizing that we are in a position, I, I don't know if a deficit isn't the right word, but we actually have to earn trust. It's not there to begin with. I think we maybe make a false assumption that or we take it for granted. We might take, I think I take trust for granted. Janetta, can I start with you and just um, some thoughts about mistrust, what this looks like? You know, what, what are those first steps to regaining trust? Yeah. Well, that's a lot that's loaded. <laughs> I mean, what does it look like um, in and from a primary care practice perspective, but also acute care, um, I've worked in both places, mistrust, what it, how it plays out, the symptoms that I see of mistrust is that for whatever reason, somebody doesn't show up, doesn't come back, doesn't go to an appointment and exter- sometimes external appointments, either primary care network appointments or, or specialist appointments, doesn't get their labs done. Um, there's a lot of that. That might just be the the presenting symptom of a fundamental mistrust. What it might mean uh, is that somebody doesn't chooses not to take the medicine that we prescribe, chooses a different path, perhaps takes more or less, perhaps seeks care elsewhere. And so a lot of that is, and you know, you can you can sit there and start labeling people as, being more challenging to work with and so on. And I, I just hesitate to even use words like non-compliant and so on there. It's so incredibly hurtful. Um, and it's so, so much blaming and labeling, and it doesn't take into account that everything that happens, every phenomenon happens for a reason and everyone's journey is different. And if we start trying to figure out, well, why is this happening in this space? And is there anything that I and my team, and I'm not just talking a clinic team, I'm talking that community of including community pharmacists who's working with that person, what can we do together so that this person feels welcome and so that we can rebuild whatever is broken here? Because sometimes, sometimes it's the person who's like, yep, I'm just not going to do this stuff and so be it. And it, but the vast majority of the time you have to own part of it and you have to meet, we keep talking about patients need to go do X, Y, and Z. And the onus is always on them to affect and actualize whatever care plan. And it's it's often devoid of all the context and, and the life in which people are living and not thinking about, yeah, okay, that sounds great, but I don't have a car or I don't, I can't afford to get there today, or I have childcare or my phone just got stolen. My ID got stolen. I can't go to the lab. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that gets in the way of affecting these care plans, you know, or my grandmother died and I had a, a lapse or a relapse and, and was doing, um, I, I was on a certain road, but you know what, guess what, the treatment plan is going to have to change right now. You know, there's all these things that happen and we kind of, we get 
we get taught all sorts of really linear models in healthcare training where we could think about, yes, let's fix this person. And in order to do so, you have to do A and A causes B without thinking about intersections, without thinking about people's lives and how they play out and how they impact all of that. So that's, that's all very important. We have to earn back trust by thinking about people's contexts and acknowledging it's not all up to the person to make whatever the shared plan of care looks like, we have to meet people halfway. We have to meet people there and and figure out what some of the possible challenges to this plan that we both we both developed together, figure out what some of those challenges are. And if we're willing to pony up that time to figure those things out, anticipate those challenges and help somebody find the right supports and tools to, to deal with those potential issues as they arise, that's trust earning in and of itself. That someone's like, oh, wow, they actually paid attention to my entire life. And it's not just about some pill or some lab test that they want me to go do. I just want to add something because I really agree with you, Kelly, in that we are starting in a deficit of trust. We have done a very good job. We, as in the healthcare system, over the last many, many years of doing a really good job of making people not trust us. When you think back to segregated hospitals and forced sterilizations that uh, we subjected Indigenous women to, um, birth alerts that still go on in parts of the country that result in the apprehension of children from their mothers, we have and continue to do a really good job of creating a world of distrust. And so we, it is our job to step it up and create these little interventions to bring that trust back in. And it may just start with one person and that's okay. We have clients, um, we have a whole team here, social worker, nursing physicians, and we definitely use that to an advantage. We have a a client who maybe has a really great relationship with me, but they don't trust social work. They've had a child apprehended in the past, so they don't want to see this social worker, but that patient will get a good relationship with me. Okay. Well, I trust Jackie. Well, can I introduce you to this person? They, I work with them. They're really great. I know they're the right person to help you with this need. And that goes back and forth. The social worker will have really great relationships with people, but they need to see me because we want to talk about starting them on Uh, some type of opioid, either safe supply or opioid agonist therapy. And they're like, this is Jackie. I know you maybe have had bad interactions with some pharmacists in the past. Jackie's great and she's going to take care. So you can use that. Don't get offended or take it personally if your patient doesn't trust you, but they trust your colleague. Work together to kind of use that and build these bridges of trust uh, between your staff and each other. Mm. So I'm hearing shared management, like this is a shared plan. It's not my plan, (laughs) me, healthcare provider. It's a shared plan. I'm hearing flexibility. Hey, flexibility. Brandy, do you have some examples that you have experienced from a pharmacy, pharmacist, pharmacy technician, pharmacy, or even healthcare world that you felt um, were, that you would like to share that really you felt personally built trust or where you felt an improved connection with your healthcare provider? Can you give us some examples of what that looks like? I think that one of the things that probably did the most for me when I first started seeking help, the first time I went on opioid agonist therapy was back in like the early 2000s. I was very dysfunctional at that time. I was very, very depressed. I was, you know, not not doing well. I was in um, a really bad place. And so just basic day-to-day, what we call, you know, in professional life, many of us use the term ADLs, activities of daily living, right? Uh, Just to get those done was very challenging at that point. And so my pharmacy was closed at 6 p.m. And there was times that even though I didn't live that far away, I would be showing up there, running in the door at like 5.55, Sometimes I even showed up at like 6.03, the door was already locked. And you know what? I banged on the door and Shelly, the pharmacist, came up and she wasn't happy with me that I was making her stay late and showing up there after the pharmacy had closed already. Nobody likes somebody showing up even, you know, one minute before closing to get their, their doses dispensed because it means that you're going to be, you know, probably 
that much more, probably 10 minutes late leaving, I'm sure. But she did it. She cared enough to come to the door, open it up, understanding that I would be sick and not thinking that I was just being an inconsiderate jerk. And that made me start to have some trust in her. It created the beginnings of building a relationship there. And it was just that small act of reaching out, kind of going above and beyond. I heard that there was another person who was strictly forbidden carries because he had illegally diverted medication. And she went and opened the pharmacy for an hour every Sunday even though she usually did not open on Sundays. It was a small community pharmacy and they were closed Sundays. She went and opened for one hour every Sunday for that one patient so that they could continue to receive their treatment at the pharmacy that was closest to their house and where he was comfortable. Word of that got around. A lot of people talked about that. A lot of people began to switch their medicine to that pharmacy because they heard that that was a place that you could go. And even if, you know, they were strict about following rules and they weren't going to, you know, take any, any crap, you know what, you, you knew that they cared about you as a person and that they were willing to go out of their way to help you and wanted you to succeed. Yeah, those small extras, you know, knowing or remembering people's little details even, asking about their kids by name, all of those things help to build trust, just like in every other relationship, you know? So considering, you know, what this person's life looks like, and I heard you say asking, so just asking. Janetta and Jackie, is this something that you do in your practice? Is it is it as simple as that, just asking? Sure. I, one thing that came to mind, and I wrote this down because I, I don't know the perfect time to say it, and I don't know where I learned this from either. I should figure that out. Sometimes, I'm going to be very blunt here, but I, I think sometimes when we think about, okay, we're going to dispense methadone or OAT, there's fear. There's fear around like poor behavior, right? That quote unquote difficult patients and people not wanting to deal with that. And Someone once said to me that instead of like looking at the situation, so somebody may come in and they are unable to express themselves, they're very, very frustrated, and they may be acting inappropriately for the situation. But instead of looking at it as like, what is wrong with that person? Like, why are they acting like that? What is wrong with Brandy? She's coming in two minutes late. She can't make it into the pharmacy. What is wrong with that person? But instead of thinking like, what happened to that person that these behaviors are coming out? And not putting everything kind of on like, this is that person's fault necessarily. So that's kind of one piece is just like reframing your thinking about things and not blaming people for what is in many times a very unavoidable situation. And as Brandy mentioned, people are going through things that you could not fathom or understand or know even go on in your city. And so to remove that judgment piece, listening is key. Like being a good active listener, if there is any skill I can suggest working on is your active listening skills. Um, Because if you can show appropriate body language, if you truly care, if you're involved, you're invested in your active listening, that will show through. That will show through in your body language. And I don't have like a great active listening (laughs) resource, um, but that is one skill to work on as well. Little things, as Brandy mentioned, go a long way. Asking your patients, one thing we try to ask when clients come in, so uh, all my patients, most of my patients are living with HIV. And so obviously there's very specific agenda that I want to accomplish when they're coming in for their appointment. There's things I want to know, things we need to get done. But the first thing I ask my patients is what do they hope to get out of that appointment today? What, What do you need from me? And sometimes I can't do that. And that's okay. That doesn't mean you have to lie or kind of go around the bush about it, beat around the bush about it, but be honest. As Brandy mentioned, talk to somebody in a respectful way. Uh, Be honest with what you can do for your patients, what you can accomplish and what is not possible. And then one other thing I wanted to mention too is, and maybe we can get to this a little bit later, but there's obviously many different types of stigma. There's structural stigma. So stigma that's really embedded into our institutions. Things like you can't start on opioid agonist therapy when you go to jail. Like that's one thing. There's social stigma, the stigma that 
we put on other people that this is, it was your choice to do this. It was your choice to use drugs. These consequences are your fault. And then there's self-stigma that Brandy had talked about as well. That is incredibly difficult for people to shed. And we can start working on chipping away, whether you're patient facing or not, at some of this structural stigma. There are policies and procedures and things we do that don't necessarily make sense. And so like one example, opioid treatment agreements. And I'm not going to get into the argument about whether they're good, bad, should be there, but some there's requirements for them for some prescribers in some jurisdictions. So there's like the opioid treatment agreement that's five pages long, size eight font that goes through like all these things that the patient is not allowed to do. And why does it have to be that way? So you can restructure that opioid treatment agreement to go, yes, please store your methadone in a safe space. A lockbox is an expectation. This drug can kill somebody who has never used opioids before. That piece is in there. If you want a dose increase, we would like you to have an appointment. But then in return, this is going to be a very safe, non-judgmental place for you. We will never judge you for something that's going on in your life. So please have open communication with us. We need a urine drug screen. Again, I'm not going to get into the argument about that, but we expect a urine drug screen once per month. In turn, we will never cut you off of your methadone because there's another substance in your urine drug screen. We will use this as a teaching tool. We're going to talk to each other about it. But because there's fentanyl in there or something else, that does not mean we will ever cut you off. So there's little things that you can do to make the conversation both ways. We shouldn't expect our patients to be giving to us all the time. As Janetta mentioned, we hold enough space. Let's shrink our space down and give that space back to our clients and to our patients so we can provide best care for them. You know, I love that. I mean, the whole notion of agreements needs a major rework. And I still see people calling them contracts. And I'm like, come on. These are, first of all, they're agreements in principle. And maybe they're starting points, maybe. But yeah, they're incredibly uh, healthcare um, centric and healthcare privileging, right? And it's always about what that person who is on the supposed receiving and going to do and what they have to commit to. And it's not about what the healthcare team commits to at all, right? There are no, there's no accountabilities for the healthcare team at all within that agreement. You have to do these things as a patient in order to be privileged to receive life-saving yeah. healthcare. And how does that build trust? If I'm saying you yeah. need to do all these things, but don't expect anything of me. <laughs> No cardiac patient has to do that, right? Yeah. They should do a whole lot of things. They should agree to go to the field house and do their exercise and to follow the dietitian appointments and all the rest of it. But you know what? They don't have to sign a contract to their doctor that, you know, we're going to not, the cardiologist whose time is very valuable is just not going to bother to see you unless you've done A, B, C, and D. Well, and I mean, bringing it even closer to home, we don't even expect that of, say, non-racialized drinkers, right? Like you don't like there's there's different there's different hierarchies, even when we're talking about things that we consume. Um, and it depends on who's doing the, Yeah. Smokers as well. Um, and to a certain extent, cannabis now. Right. So it's just it, there's a hierarchy there. But there's actually some, some there's been some um, researchers out there who've actually looked at how we we tend to create more rules and more scrutiny for equity-seeking groups. And we try to highlight the deficits. We try to highlight the gaps and have to, you know, get people to pony up. And we never talk about strengths and we never talk about what's going well. And we never talk about what, what they can offer. And, um, and, and then in turn, we never talk about our own gaps and deficits. So uh, I think it's time for us to kind of flip the script a little. Mm, and focusing on the strength and what might be going well, as opposed to what isn't. And isn't that interesting? More rules and scrutiny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because those people are dangerous. Yeah. They're by nature rule breakers. They're manipulative. Now these are not real true things, but these are the things that people will whisper at the water cooler or at the coffee pot behind their hand sometimes even not in the in the staff rooms these are the kind of things that we have all heard staff say in care providing situations you can't trust those people whatever the group is they're likely to be manipulative they won't follow rules you have to make them follow rules you know there is a mistrustful 
perception on the behalf of care providers towards stigmatized groups. And the different stigmatized groups may be received different levels of mistrust with probably people who are injection drug users being one of the most mistrusted. But if we look at the idea of trust and mistrust, part of that is that people who are stigmatized and who are on the receiving end of, you know, sort of pushing for equity are not stupid. And a lot of the times their demands have been pushed aside and people are told that, you know, they don't reflect reality or it's just their perception. But that's the reality is that they're not dumb. They know that they are mistrusted. So how do you offer trust to a person who's shown you mistrust already? That's made that relationship based effectively on lies. That is not an equal relationship. Care providers are continually afraid of those stigmatized clients. They don't want to say so, but they are. They're afraid that they will do something bad to them, that they will lose their license because they will get tricked by them. I was going to just add very quickly, and I think, and this is not to minimize the stigma that clients are facing, but I do think one of the reasons healthcare providers don't want to dabble in this area is we cause stigma to each other. So they look at, oh, that doctor is prescribing this, or they will prescribe this dose of methadone, or that pharmacy does it. We do this to each other. And so the stigma um, between healthcare providers who support marginalized and stigmatized populations also needs to be addressed and stopped. So think about that when you're talking about your colleagues and other pharmacists, other pharmacies, other physicians things like that. You know, and just to add to that, I had a student who had recently done a placement and uh, I, I asked how her experience was. And, and she said, you know, it was bizarre. She said the person that I was, that was my preceptor, they, they told me that they didn't believe in methadone. They didn't, they didn't believe it. So they didn't practice it. And, you know, and th- I'm, I'm just sitting here really listening to you because it just seems so crazy that in 2023, that a healthcare professional would have that mentality. But clearly, I mean, Jackie, you're experiencing all the time. Janetta, I'm sure you do. Brandy, you've experienced it firsthand. And it's it's just mind-blowing. So what are these, I'm just kind of wondering, what are the conversations we can have with our colleagues when we hear these kinds of almost mind-blowing statements? What kind of conversations can we have with our colleagues that might I guess, broaden their minds a little bit. If you can touch on that at all, Jackie, I'd be interested to hear. Well, I'm still working through it. I don't believe in fibrates, just so you know. So I don't prescribe, like, it's it's just so ridiculous, right? When like, I don't believe. And we, that's part of um, the stigma around people who use substances, people who use opioids, that it's a choice, right? It's not a medical condition that you have an opioid use disorder. It was a decision you made and it was a bad one. And now bad things are happening to you. And we would expect that, which is just wild. It blows my mind that you can get treated for everything in a correctional facility. But if you enter a correctional facility, in most cases in Saskatchewan, you don't get started on opiate agonist therapy unless you are on it already, or you go to the hospital and someone is there with an infective endocarditis and well, they're not talking to me about their substance use. We're just going to ignore that. We're just not going to do that. So someone doesn't start talking to you about their diet right away when they've had an MI. Do you just like, well, we're not going to treat the MI? Like, we're just going to ignore that piece? Like, you have to look at it as a whole. As for what we can do, I mean, we always say like education is the answer, doing these types of things, I hope. Sometimes I just try to be a small L leader. I'm not in any position of authority or anything here, but I do work and I try to do good work. And if those actions are seen um, and patients get treated and they have good outcomes and they are that leads to housing and that leads to stability and that leads to all these other wonderful things. I think that speaks for itself. Um, Having students is huge. I think it's important for us to educate young providers um, coming up and growing forward so that they're not scared of these things as they enter their practices. I don't know, anything else, Janetta? 
No. And it comes down to building those relationships with colleagues and being willing to enter that space because it's a vulnerable space for yourself. And just being willing to be authentic within those spaces is really, really important. But modeling, I mean, one example I can think of, two examples, and they both come from acute care. And then one is just walkabouts in the community. So I'll start with, we, I was involved in kind of the, um, the implementation of the ARCH team at the Royal Alex Hospital um, here in Edmonton, which is an addiction medicine consult team. And the Royal Alex, as I think some people, at least in Alberta will know, and possibly in Saskatchewan, is that it, it serves a very, very structurally uh, underserved uh, population. And many, many people who use drugs do attend that facility. And, um, and so quite a few years ago now, we recognized that there was a whole lot of unmet service need at that hospital that we could be doing far better. One of the things that we learned as we um, explored the experience with the rollout of that, that uh, and I'm not even going to talk about outcomes, patient, I'm, I just want to talk about the process of the work. And one of the things that um, our takeaway point is, uh, was, is that there was, people were observing how the team did their work and recognizing that when that team was involved and all of this trust building and relationship building and shared decision-making and goals-oriented care and so on, when the, and harm reduction, I might add, in addition to treatment, so all of it together, all the social care, everything together, one of the things that they noticed uh, that other people in the hospital started to notice is that their whole experience of providing care improved that somehow the units got calmer, that people started trusting the whole system a little better because of the involvement of a team that seemed to give a rip. And, and, and that kind of culture and that practice kind of um, spread, right? And you're not going to change absolutely everyone in, in, a, in an institution, but just that notion of, of spreading, of changing how we do things. And the what's in it for me that, wow, actually, I'm enjoying practicing more now. And so I just put that out there and I will note that there was a, a pharmacist who's integral to changing that culture, in my opinion, um, within that ARCH team. And so remember that it's not just about the physicians on the team ever, 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 right? So every single person on that team modeled good relational practices for their disciplinary colleagues across the, across the hospital. That's one example that I think is really strong for me. And I've seen that also in just providing um, better care to pregnant people who use drugs in my obstetrical practice and the same idea about just modeling, like this does not have to be punitive. This can be about what really is best for a baby also means what's best for the, the parents and how do we support the parents and thinking about the whole family and kin and, 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 and all the supports that that person needs and wraparound supports and just starting to model things and making like demystifying it and recognizing this isn't st- something to be afraid of. This is part of our work. It's in our face. And just, but just starting to pay attention and offering to have shadows with you, offering to share your process, offering to have to, to, to show people how it is that you do your work. It really, really matters. The last one I can think of is when I'm just out and about with colleagues at a meeting on a patio or with my children or whoever, if I see someone who is on the nod or whatever, I'm going to stop and I'm going to have a conversation with them and I'm going to make sure they're doing okay and see if there's anything I can do to help them in the moment. Maybe it's just to give them my kit uh, so I, and I can go pick up another one. <laughs> I'm talking about naloxone here, right? But that's one of the reasons in the pandemic I started just riding my bike to work is there's lots of reasons, but one of them was so I could just check on my neighbors because a lot of them are going down, right? And my, by neighbors, I mean the encampment, you know, within a block of my home, like you just stopping in, saying hi, treating absolutely every person on that bike route with the same level of respect, right? And, and just, hey, are you okay? Are you, it's just like I would stop for someone who's having a flat tire. I'm going to stop and just make sure that person who seems a little more tired than usual, make sure they're okay. And occasionally pulling out and administering the oxygen, right? So, so just being there for people and demystifying it and not running away from that in fear. And if that sounds scary, like, oh my gosh, I have to go out and administer naloxone to everybody. That's also not necessarily the case, but know your resources. No, we have mobile crisis in Regina. I was out for dinner and there was a woman, it was minus 1 trillion degrees outside. She missed the last bus. She was getting forcibly removed from a restaurant when she just needed a phone to try and get to where she needed. 
I called mobile crisis on my phone and sat with her while we waited for the cab to come and pick her up. Like little things like that make a huge difference and they'll bleed into your work life, into your personal life as you develop this practice. And as Janetta said, it becomes so much more satisfying when you can have these relationships and know that something that's so small that you did was so huge to somebody else. We have, we have a closet in our clinic where we just keep clothing and like basic personal hygiene supplies so that clients can come in and just like pick things that they need. If they need a pair of socks or a pair of shoes or something like that, we don't hide it away. I don't specifically say, I'm going to give this to you. Like it's there and people can make the choice as to what they need or what they want. And so doing small things like that, wherever your practice is, um, can be really huge and sharing them with other people. That's how this can hopefully spread. Mm-hmm. I have a question that I might want to throw to all three of you and recognizing that we have a pretty diverse audience of listeners. And I can recall um, when I was working in chronic pain in my early days in chronic pain, I sat back and I thought, I'm not an addictions pharmacist. I'm a chronic pain pharmacist. I deal with chronic pain that came out of my mouth. And so there might be people that feel, you know, this, this isn't my practice site, right? I don't work in the inner city. I'm not working in a specialized clinic. What might you say to pharmacy professionals that are thinking that this doesn't apply to me because so much of what I've heard today is how applicable this is to each and every one of us as healthcare providers. But um, Brandy, I might start with you. Thoughts around that? What might you say to someone who thinks this, well, how does this fit for me? I would say that if you're a pharmacist providing care for patients, providing services for uh, a clinic, providing, you know, any kind of services, substance dependence is shockingly common. And I think that it's important that we maybe should not only, uh, you know, we need to go outside just the base, the the opioid agonist therapy and opioid addiction, although that certainly is always a number one concern in terms of substance misuse and substance disorders with pharmacy, because it's one of the things that pharmacists often are heavily involved in. But, you know, there are people who are also alcohol abusers, cocaine abusers, There are people using and abusing all kinds of substances um, and having dependency with all kinds of substances. And as a pharmacist, you can have a role and are a pharmacy assistant in providing care for those people. And you may know who they are, you may not. But if somebody, for example, has cardiac issues and they come in and they you know, um, have a prescription for bupropion, Wellbutrin, right? To help them perhaps, you know, with smoking cessation or they're looking for some Nicorette. Those are other other areas where you're going to deal with people with, with substance use disorders. You're not always going to know who's got a substance use disorder. And they're not all people in the inner city. And there are many, many, many people They are employed and you will never pick them out from a crowd. They are Joe Blow from Idaho. They are your carpenter. They're your kid's teacher. We look at the number of people who are dying of overdoses all across North America, opioid overdoses in particular. Many, many, many of the people who are experiencing fatal overdoses are people who work in real jobs, good paying jobs. And a lot of people who work in healthcare have overdosed and died from opioids and other illegal drugs. So it's really important for everybody to sort of try to unpack some of these things because you're dealing with substances and and substance use and dependency no matter where you're working. I would say the, um, (laughs) I've spent a lot of time sitting and looking at data and, um, and I can only speak to the Alberta landscape here, but, uh, I can say that, uh, if you look at the geographic distribution of just drug poisoning deaths, let alone all of the other harms that are experienced by people who use drugs, you will recognize that every single neighborhood has been affected, right? These are 
thousands now, thousands of families and communities that have been affected. It's every single neighborhood, every single geographic area, right? So it is fair, however, to say that there are some areas that are disproportionately affected. So there's that. There's also, it's, you're at higher risk of harm in some cases if you're if you've just been deinstitutionalized, you've just been discharged from hospital, you've just been discharged from jail. So there are specific pockets of the population that are experiencing higher risk, the colonized and the racialized, the houseless. But remembering that absolutely every single neighborhood has witnessed some of this. People aren't statistics and they aren't single diseases. And they aren't cases in your labor room or your pain clinic. They are people with a life experience, a holistic, biopsychosocial, spiritual ex existence. And um, some of them are going to experience drug use as well. If you think there's no one there in your pharmacy practice um, where you work who is experiencing any issues related to drug use or drug use policy or drug use harms from a, from a macro level, then probably there just hasn't been enough built relationship and built trust for them to be willing to chat with you about it yet. So keep working on building that trust. And I think you'll hear those stories. I agree hundred percent with Janetta. If you're saying like, this isn't me, maybe you should be flipping around and be like, why isn't it me? Why am I not seeing this? Is my environment conducive and safe for people who use substances? Uh, from just like very personal experience, I have many clients who leave a correctional institution um, and they're moving into, they want to get out of the inner city where they work because they want to kind of cut ties with some people. So they move to a suburb, because Regina has suburbs, but they move to a suburb. And do you know how difficult it is for me to find a pharmacy for that person? It's incredibly difficult or they want to get out of the city and move to a rural area. Do you know how difficult it is? So maybe it isn't. Well, I don't have maybe you're not looking quite yet or asking the right question. And I know for me, it was um, it was just a lack of information, education, not exactly asking the right questions. And it was just once you immersed yourself in the experience, opened my eyes to it. It was very apparent that um yeah, this is definitely a skill set that, that all of us pharmacy professionals should have some um, information about. I did want to spend a bit of time talking about, we, this kind of came up a little bit earlier. I think, Brandy, you mentioned how um, some of what you have experienced has been healthcare providers, pharmacists, pharmacy technicians coming to a conversation being suspicious and uncomfortable. I want to talk a little bit about navigating, maybe troubleshooting some challenging circumstances, tough conversations. I think that in this space, sometimes there are some tough conversations and we put those labels on, right? We call it a bad patient or a tricky situation. We use all sorts of words, um, but I wanted to talk about what it looks like to have tough conversations with people that use substances um, and I'll give some examples, right? Like opioid misuse, diversion. Um, what? How do we approach these types of situations in our pharmacies? And what are some troubleshooting tips that you might have um, for our listeners? People may be more comfortable at times telling their pharmacist the truth because they often will see a pharmacist more often, especially if you're a community pharmacist. Uh, working in, you know, some place where people see you at least once a month, probably if they have regular prescriptions to pick up all the time. And I think if you can work as much as you can with the time you have to try to develop relationships, that makes tough conversations a lot easier. I would say, again, try to go through the same sort of steps that you would use to have a tough conversation with somebody who you have a lot of respect for and who has authority over you because then it minimizes the risk that you'll put that person off or that you'll make them angry or initiate their defense reaction. If you come to them in a way that doesn't feel dangerous to them, that doesn't make them feel like they're, um, their prescription is at risk, they're being attacked, this is just a, a medical issue, you know, you're the pharmacist, you're not a judge. So all you're interested in, you're 
concern is about them and their health and about the chemistry of the substances they put in their body and how those interact. If you can, you know, try to help people feel like you're at that level of non-judgmental because your concern is that you don't want an unfortunate biochemical reaction to cause them harm, which is really a big part of why pharmacists worry about drug interactions, worry about things like diversion, worry about things like opioid overdose, because you don't want them to have a chemical in their body in a quantity that is harmful. If you come to it from a perspective of being very objective, very non-judgmental, and very respectful, that will help a lot. I think, too, like we get the heebie-jeebies about talking about some things sometimes. Like I get students and they're like, oh, like the urine drug screen or like, I need to ask about who I'm like, why are you whispering? Like you ask them who their sexual partners are, you ask, right? Like we get, we get nervous about some of these things and I'm not nervous explaining what someone's INR is. I'm not nervous explaining what someone's HIV viral load is. And I'm not nervous about explaining what was in someone's urine drug screen to them. I turn my computer around. I show them the screen. This is what is here. Is this what you expected to see? I maybe did or did not expect this. And as Brandy mentioned, I mean, you set the stage if you have a relationship and you have a safe space and you do all those foundational things. All these conversations are, you have difficult conversations with your spouse, your kids, your parents, whomever. It's no different than that. Go in with mutual respect. Don't go in with you are the police and you are providing a piece of judgment because that is not our role. Our role is to provide support and safe care. Explain, be honest. Like we are prescribing Eucadian and we don't see morphine in your screen. Do you know why that might be? Let's talk about that. Maybe they are really struggling with food. Maybe they're struggling with housing and they, they sold it so that they could eat. Maybe there's something else that we can do to help with that. Yeah. And I love the idea of sharing screens and remembering that whose data are we talking about? And that's incredibly important. We're talking about mind and body sovereignty and data sovereignty increasingly as we should as a, as a, as a matter of truth and reconciliation. And I think just thinking about that and about like whose information is this and who am I sharing it with? And am I building, am I explaining why I want to know this stuff, you know, that I'm not just being nosy and I'm not just trying to be a voyeur into their lives. So I think it is important to kind of frame the conversation, but then get comfortable with it. And just say, hey, it's part of whole person care. And I this matters to me just as much as um, your INR does. <laughs> and, and you know, and actually it's going to impact your INR. So let's talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> um, so I think that's really, really important uh, as well. I think we might start wrapping up here. And just, I wanted to leave our final words with each of our guests. So um, Kim, I'm going to start with you too. Just if everyone has a thought about kind of a key takeaway, something that might have been surprising about our conversation today, something that might have been particularly interesting, one of your takeaways from the conversation. Kim, thoughts? Well, for me, I kind of took from each of you, and Kelly, yourself included, I took from you. And I, I think Brandy was the one, and she said, give yourself, give yourself. And then I, I want to give myself and build trust. And I think that's for all of us, but we have to do with empathy. And my main takeaway here is what empathy truly means. And I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget it. It's honoring the person, their story, and their space. Um, for me today, something that we didn't talk about, but it is just, I've heard this said before, that the opposite to addiction is connection. And as we, in our first podcast conversation, even this conversation, all of the opportunities for connection with the people that are in front of us in our pharmacies, in our pharmacy departments, wherever we work. So I'm just thinking more about connection and how I can make safe, supported connections with people. So no big takeaways, but just something I'm thinking about. Um, Janetta, I'm going to pass to you. I think another takeaway, and I agree with the, what, what's been said already, I think another takeaway that I would like to extend is just the, the centering of the person who uses drugs and making sure that the care is really about them and, and not about you, but recognizing what you bring to the table is really important and that authenticity must be there and to bring yourself 
um, to that table and and um, be be willing to to sit with someone and and bear witness to that person and not be an impassionate observer somewhere else. Jackie, you all have said many great things. I think one thing I hope listeners today acknowledge is that there are different types of stigma and it can be very insidious. So our patients are experiencing it themselves. We may be experiencing ourselves as providers. There's social stigma, stigma we put onto other people. And then there's stigma really embedded in our institutions and where we practice and where we live and what we do. And so if you can start piecing out, identifying areas of stigma in your practice and start working on one little bit, one at a time, you don't have to upheave everything and open a needle exchange and do everything all at once. That's not what this is about. Um, It's about starting small, acknowledging your areas of improvement, and then continually working on improving. And we'll provide some resources to you. And by taking this type of education, that will do that as well. But it's a journey. And ask your clients for feedback. That is who you're going to learn the most from. But ask your patients and ask your clients how you're doing, what you can do better, how you can provide better care for them. Randy? There's been so many um, interesting and really uh, great points raised. I think one of the things that I wish we'd had a little bit more time to discuss was advocating within your institution uh, to create that safe space, to do the work right, to provide you with the space as a worker that you may need, creating a systematic space to provide client-centered care is something that's really important. And even if you don't feel like your particular pharmacy is one that handles a lot of things related to opioid agonist therapy, if you're in a job that's not public-facing, those are things that everybody within the profession can help to work towards because providing client-centered care, for example, or more time and more space to do client counseling, that's something that everybody can really work on. And creating that deliberate space for empathy for yourself, for your colleagues, I think is also really important. Janetta, Jackie, Brandy, thank you so much for this conversation today. Um, I'm so grateful for your expertise and your experience and really appreciate um, what you've shared with us today. So thank you to each of you. Uh, To everyone listening, thank you for taking the time to connect with us and this conversation today. We hope we've given you a little bit more to keep doing the amazing work that you're doing and maybe even take those next steps. Thanks so much. Take care all. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pharmacy Perspectives, Providing Safer Spaces. Our podcast hosts are Kelly, Kim, and Ryan. This podcast is a joint project created by Alberta College of Pharmacy and Continuing Professional Development for Pharmacy Professionals based out of the University of Saskatchewan. Our producers are Mary Fraser and Pamela Timmonson. Editing was done by Anwen Dyko, and our music is by BJ Catt.